Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Oliver Manel, founder and chief executive of Neom Organics London. Oliver, hello. Hello, Matthew. How are you? I am well. Thank you for coming on the show today. We might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? The word leader means to me, um, I would say it's, um, it goes hand in hand with um, being optimistic by nature, I would say. I think, I think in these times, it's um, very, very important that um, you truly kind of believe in the possibility of a successful outcome. Um, no one wants to follow Eeyore into battle, as someone, um, something, uh, someone once said to me. And I just think it's really, really important that um, when there's all these challenges out there from um, e- economic and political and even, even health hazards as there is in the news right now, it's just really, really important to um, to still remain optimistic, and that's not blind optimism. You know, that's not believing that everything is always going to be okay, but it is truly believing that there is a possibility that 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 you are going to get a successful outcome, and truly believing in that. And I think leadership and a kind of this sense of optimism are are really important and should go hand in hand. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? Um, well, I would say absolutely I'm optimistic. Um, and I would say I'm also, um, I'm also very open with people and, um, and honest. I think, I think having, um, authenticity and honesty kind of, kind of really go hand in hand. Um, and what that really means is that is, is, is when you take, you know, risks in business, sometimes they're going to work and sometimes, uh, sometimes they're not. And I think it's impossible to actually envisage a situation where you only make um, successful choices. But I think when you do make those mistakes, it's really important to kind of be honest with people and and and, and explain to them um, the situation. Um, so I think really kind of taking taking kind of calculated risks is is is, is really important mm-hmm. and understanding what the downside is. Um, and then what's really really imperative is then kind of like learning uh, from those mistakes. So. Um, uh, so you kind of make progression and, uh, and and keep people kind of on that journey with you. And of course, leading people is something that uh, one gets with experience. Uh, you lead quite a decent amount of, of individuals. And of course, individuals have their own foibles and uh, conflicts with each other. How do you handle the uh, resol- resolution of these issues between uh, your staff? Okay, well, first of all, I think it, it starts with hiring the right people. Um, and so, and so for me, we've built a business now with, uh, with over a hundred staff, uh, we've been going for about 15 years. And when I started Neon at the age of 23, I really didn't have any management experience. So, um, I've learned everything kind of on the job as it were. And what I've come to realize now after these 15 years is how important the culture fit is for business. Um, and I've met a lot of businesses where they kind of define their culture, um, but they don't really, um, they don't really emphasize it enough. Mm. And so for me, I think it's really important to kind of like consider, you know, what it is that, that defines your culture, number one. And then number two, when you, when you recruit, you recruit against those values. So you find people, for example, who, you know, are comfortable with um, a level of conflict, as long as it's done in a positive and constructive way, people are always going to disagree. 
but it's um, it's how you kind of it's how you disagree, which is important. And mm-hmm. so for me, I, I I enjoy personally being challenged. In fact, one of our company values is to challenge everything. I want the status quo to be challenged. I want people to have the confidence if they see something that they think isn't being done right, that they can stand up to the CEO and say, look, Oliver, I know this is the way we've always done it, but I really, really think there's a better way of doing it, which is, which is this. And so for me, I, I think leading by example and showing people that um, you, can, you can handle conflict in a positive way is where it, is where it really begins. And then also, you know, really praising people when they do have that confidence to stand up and challenge say, the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're not going to get in trouble for it. But quite the opposite. You're going to actually celebrate that. So I think, number one, uh, you know, it starts with hiring the right kind of people for your business and for your, and for your particular business's personality. Um, and just, and just a, a, little, a little nuance on that, I would say as well, in the first five years or so, I, I pretty much exclusively hired people that had industry experience. And uh, I think that's, I think that is important, but I've come to realize now that um, that attitude um, kind of surpasses really a lot of experience. So if you have someone that comes in with a right attitude and they're smart, that beats having prior experience. Um, and so um, I would really, really, uh, I heard a great saying once, which is, um, hire for attitude and train for skill. Mm. Um, and I, and I do, I do believe that. And, uh, when it comes to many different roles. So you believe there's a, a capability of molding employees and the company's image, uh, in having sort of a mentor mentee relationship. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's really important what you do when, when, when people, when people first join the business, you know, the first, the first week, two weeks is absolutely kind of critical. That's when someone is kind of like they they've got all their eyes and ears on the business and they're observing what your culture is like. What are the do's and what are the don'ts? Um, how do I get decisions? How are decisions made in this place? And so for me, I think it's really, really important that when you, when you have a new person join the business, um, you, you, you kind of really, um, you know, kind of indoctrinate them to the, to mm-hmm. the culture as it were. And then you've got to be really, you've got to be really, um, you know, clear that, um, you know, within a, within a, within a certain period of time, if someone, if someone isn't right for the business, then, you know, you give them that positive, you give them that feedback. And if, and if, and if they don't change, then, um, then, you know, within that pr- probationary period, you move them, for, you move them on because having the right people, um, you know, within that, within your business and, and celebrating the culture, is is the only way to keep it alive. Say I was a new hire just walking through the door today. What would your first advice be to me? Um, so my first advice to you would be um, always bring a, a kind of a can-do positive attitude to everything that you do. There's going to be challenges here. There's going to be some curveballs. But it's how we it's how we face those curveballs is what kind of really defines us, um, and so I'm I'm always a believer that there's 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 always a successful outcome to any problem that we get mm-hmm. um, that we get uh, challenged with, but it's how we deal with those that really defines us. So I would just I would just really kind of like have a conversation around um, around what that kind of positive attitude can where that can take you within this business because I think it really does start and end with attitude. Now let's go back uh, to an earlier time when you were first forming uh, your work ethic and uh, your first forays into the world of business. Was there a particular figure uh, who inspired you to be the leader that you are today? Well, um, I've got to mention to my my father, um, 
my father set up his own business at uh, at the age of um, seventeen years old, and um, and he he always worked extremely hard, um, you know, incredible work ethic, and also you know my mother uh, was a, a nurse, a maternity nurse, uh, you know, working two two or three jobs at certain times of her life, and so I think work ethic has always been you know very very much drilled into me. Um, and then also just, um, just, you know, at a very young age, my dad being an entrepreneur would always kind of give me little entrepreneurial challenges, mm-hmm. you know, growing up, you know, such as, you know, the first pair of trainers I ever bought as a 12 year old. Um, I remember they cost 40 pounds and my dad gave me 30 pounds in cash and said, right, you've got to negotiate with the store manager to kind of get them, for, get them for less, which for me was uh, an incredibly embarrassing situation, but he made me do it. And I, and I came out the other side, you know, feeling, oh, wow, you know, there's this kind of, you don't have to necessarily play by the, uh, play by the rule book the whole time. And so, and so if you amount those little lessons over life, they kind of give you the confidence that you can take, you can take small risks. Uh, and sometimes large risks, if you kind of really understand the downside and, and what there is to gain from them. And then, and then, and then I said, I guess combined with that, I've just been, I've been inspired by many different um, entrepreneurs over the years. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'd really just encourage people, you know, to read lots of autobiographies on, uh, on people that really inspire them. Um, and, and so for me, I've always been inspired by Richard Branson. I think, I think fundamentally, I love that he's, his business personality and his actual personality are kind of one in the same. Like he is the business, the business is him. And so, um, I, I just, I, I, and obviously what he's created in his life has been phenomenal. So there's been lots of people who inspire me. Now, Oliver, unfortunately our time together is very quickly drawing to its close, but before I let you go, what does next 12 months have in store for Neom? Well, the next 12 months, so um, only two years ago, um, we received some private equity backing, which is really exciting. So we've got some growth capital in the business. Um, we're an omni-channel business, so we, we're, we're selling through retail stores, we're selling online at neomorganics.com, and then we're selling within wholesale, um, for example, in partners like John Lewis and Fennec. So for us, the next year is really going to be about um, uh, opening some more retail stores. So watch this space for new stores coming into London. Uh, we're also going to be expanding internationally. Uh, we've got some really exciting U.S. plans um, on the cards. Um, and then we've got a thriving business in uh, in Asia. And so for me, it's really about um, consolidating the work we've done in the U.K. and, and expanding internationally. Well, Oliver, that sounds very exciting. And you have to come back on the show at some time in the near future to let us know how things are going. Oliver, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Oliver Manel, founder and chief executive of Neom Organics London. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Uh, we're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary. David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure. But uh, since we are talking around the theme of leadership, it would be a remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party. Apart from, I'm sure you're delighted that a certain someone is leaving a post. What are your thoughts on it so far? Well, I think the party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, are they in, in the stands watching or are they on the pitch playing? And if they want to play, then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good, positive ideas. I like them because they're about 
building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than trying to replicate a failed past. And she can reach out to people that others can't. So I'm, I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir Starmer is very professional, mm. very able, and presents extremely well. And I, I hope that one of those two uh, actually come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism, especially from... Uh, for uh, candidates a little further left um, than them who've criticised even the last Labour uh, uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism. Yes, I think it's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat, uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, I, we, we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the, the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before, Sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalet is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tougher home secretaries because the people that I cared about most were, on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a, a single nation just off the coast of Europe, and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in, but how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world. Th those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, an ageing population. Labour got 18% of the over 65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, and and climate change, which we all know is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us. No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies, certainly. And sp speaking of your time uh, as Home Section in government, um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes, I mean, I, it's on the theme of bottom-up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really, really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children. 
by inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, lighting a candle inside them, uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world, which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to uh, if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business, you can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that, the contribution to... Uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other. Uh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a term, uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to giving your answer, David, to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day -day basis. And without them, half of society wouldn't function. Completely. I, I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's, what, it's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognising that they are dependent on each other. I, I've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders in a different vein, I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times. Uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom, in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in the, his conference speech the year before he stood down as Prime Minister, and I, I knew exactly what he meant. He said the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions. And anyone in a leadership role needs to, A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the uh, authority mm. that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh, and I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that and they have a clear idea themselves, they, they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities, they know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper and... I don't pretend for a minute over the years <laughs> that, that I haven't. How, how to control your own feelings and emotion and how to bring the best out in other people's. How, how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you, they compliment you. People who have complementary skills to you are really valuable. And I suppose the ability to listen, not just for its own sake, mm -hmm. but to listen because you are conglomerating, I suppose you would call it plagiarising, thoughts, ideas, ways forward, 
from everyone around you. I often think that um, football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talk to the fans after the game. Well, everyone knows, uh, David, you know, you're a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week after week. No, I, it isn't, although it's damn good for Sheffield, so I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment. That's very good About Sheffield United in the Premier League, because it, it, it does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're Not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I, I, I could cry sometimes. We can, we can beat uh, Brighton, Premier League side, in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them 2-0 in January. And then you can lose 5-0. And then five you lose 5-0 yeah. at home to Blackburn and half the fans were out of the ground by, by half-time. What, what would a manager blanket say in the situation? I, I would have asked myself a very simple question. What went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field, they walked instead of ran? They didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds. They showed no drive and incentive to take hold of the game. What, what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously and if you can answer that question and there may have something may have happened who knows something during the morning before the game started something may have gone sour you get the answer to that question and you then start to ensure that we never never do this again well i'm a chelsea fan so i'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute um but i would like to pick up on another point you just made actually david about choosing a strong team people that compliment you a lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick perhaps the more ambitious, the more uh, 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 people uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her. One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Assistant? Well, I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which as we record this podcast has not yet happened mm. and I imagine I, I would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle not just to get people in who he likes but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world you can pronounce on what you're going to do but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it if they're just toadies by the way and there is a tendency a new mm. prime minister large majority got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them but get able people in i, I, I won't comment on some of the less able but there are <laughs> clearly in the cabinet as i speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it i mean incidentally anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, changed their minds recently about mm. Sky, <clears throat> isn't worth their salt. If, but part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief, that you believe in it, and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa 
mm. for a, a, an easy morning television program, get out of the business. You know, don't don't do without it. a doubt. Yeah, uh, that's and also I should add that is how uh, of all stripes earn that respect in the first place. But there is a question, isn't I'm there? I'm trying to answer the questions. That's, that's <laughs> what I always tried to answer the or questions. Or be very good at avoiding them. Either way. Um, oh, well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why. Not quite. Uh, <laughs> the, um, and I think one of the great things about uh, the Lise Castle especially is that um, it takes and talks to people again from all different backgrounds leading something very different whether it's a charity whether it's a business whether it's in politics there comes points though and David you must have experienced this whether it's leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary when people are looking at you for leadership where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us there's a tenacity there's a an ambition there's a desire to get things done to make a difference inside you whether you're in public service the charities or you're driving a business that actually says this is why I get up in the morning so you've got to have something internal to yourself the, the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better you, you can take pride without being egotistical there's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better and that's why you need both Sharp minds around you. In my case, it was special advisors as, as well as ministers. I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about, and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors, and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in, in the end, you've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the, the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin, they... they it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics, you, you're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education and employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us it turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Centre mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with the development of positive citizenship, which also had a readover in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse. And you don't get everything right. That's the other thing you've got to recognise, which is why... Being part of a broader team, being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> because otherwise you blow with the wind, that, that, that's the, the measure. And I think if we can share those traits, those experiences, those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel, it will take people a lot further than the, the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, the very, uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions perhaps in three things. 
what will happen in the Labour leadership contest. How will the next few months go for the government after Brexit? Uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the 31st of January, and where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league? Lord above, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in, indicated where my support is for the the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January, 2020, Keir Starmer has clearly got a got off to a very very um, strong start. I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the. Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post, who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people, the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019, uh, and that that's got to be Lisa Nandy or, or Keir. On on the, um, the the next few months, I think that the government will probably do quite well. I I I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though. Alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships, in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my family and loved ones, is football and and politics... I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, I think we could pull it off, but I am really reluctant. And I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blunkett, thank you very much for joining us today. God bless you, Jonathan. (laughs) This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.